Today we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Well, g'day. It's really great to be with you today at EU Public Meetings, and I just want to echo what Isa said and commend annual conference to you. It's going to be a great week thinking about Jesus' resurrection and what that means for living in a future, living in a world that's not just free from technological issues, but free from death, and that's going to be pretty amazing. Um, as we come and start this series on prayer, I'm actually going to begin by leading us in an ancient prayer, asking that as we sit here for the next hour or so, God will turn our minds and our hearts to enjoy him. So let's pray together. Thou incomprehensible but prayer-hearing God, known but beyond knowledge, revealed but unrevealed, my wants and welfare draw me to thee, for thou hast never said, Seek ye me in vain. To thee I come in my difficulties, necessities, distresses. Possess me with thyself, with a spirit of grace and supplication, with a prayerful attitude of mind, with access into warmth of fellowship, so that in the ordinary concerns of life, my thoughts and desires may rise to thee. And in habitual devotion, I may find a resource that will soothe my sorrows, sanctify my successes, and qualify me in all ways for dealings with my fellow men. I bless thee that thou hast made me capable of knowing thee, the author of all being, of resembling thee, the perfection of all excellency, of enjoying thee, the source of all happiness. O God, attend me in every part of my arduous and trying pilgrimage. I need the same counsel, defense, comfort I found at my beginning. Let my religion be more obvious to my conscience, more perceptible to those around while Jesus is representing me in heaven, may I reflect him on earth. While he pleads my cause, may I show forth his praise. Continue the gentleness of thy goodness towards me. And whether I wake or sleep, let thy presence go with me. Thy blessing attend me. Me on, and I have found thy promises true. I have been sorrowful, but thou hast been my help. Fearful, but thou hast delivered me. Despairing, but thou hast lifted me up. Thou vows are ever upon me, and I praise thee, O God. Amen. 
Uh, the first time I prayed was not like that whatsoever. I think the, the first time I prayed, I was about seven years old. And I didn't grow up in a particularly religious family. Uh, my dad would describe himself as agnostic at best. But we lived in the Blue Mountains, and over that summer, there were terrible bushfires that had taken lives and property and surrounded Sydney. And I remember standing out on the street one summer night with my dad, watching the smoke rise from the valley near our house, and dad, kind of out of nowhere, asking me if I prayed. And to this very day, I am entirely surprised that he asked me that. No, I said. I've never been taught, never even given prayer a moment's notice. But he said that I should, and that night, tucked into my bed in the darkness of my room, I prayed for the first time. And what strikes me most as I reflect on this 25 years later is just how ordinary it was for me to pray. How ordinary it was for my agnostic dad to suggest that I pray. Uh, one of the most observable features about humans is that we are praying creatures. If you talk to an anthropologist, they'll tell you just how common prayer is across cultures. It's one of the most common things we have together. Prayer is everywhere. All types of people pray. For instance, in the Islamic religion, prayer is the second pillar of their faith, and Muslims are obliged to observe five daily prayers out of submission to Allah's will. Among various Buddhist traditions, the continued spinning of prayer wheels is thought to have meritorious uh, quality to it. Not only does it generate good karma, uh, which fights off bad karma, it also moves you closer and closer towards enlightenment. Uh, within the Tibetan school of Buddhism, there's a bit of controversy about this because some people have created prayer wheels that are generated without human effort, uh, powered by wind or water, and someone even created an um, electric-powered prayer wheel, which is really controversial because a lot of people think that's not empowering or moving on, helping anyone except the power company. Um, even in the West, where plausibility structures, the plausibility structures which have sustained practices and traditions of Christian prayer have been steadily eroded over the last century or so, you'll find that prayer is everywhere. Only last week on Twitter, prayer for Paris was trending. And if I had a dollar for every conversation I've had with an inner West baby boomer about their self-packaged spirituality, their appropriation of Tibetan prayer flags and Eastern meditation practices, I'd be a moderately wealthy man. Um, even the personification of Western capitalism, Rupert Murdoch, seems to be embracing his spiritual life. He tweeted, meditation. Everyone recommends, not that easy to get started, but said to improve everything. Tried to find a tweet to see how he's gone since 2013, and I don't think he's tweeted about it since, but there you go, Rupert Murdoch is getting into it. Prayer is everywhere which means that the next two weeks at EU public meetings is not an exercise in navel-gazing. Spending two weeks on prayer is not a shift to an in-house conversation. Not every human may pray, but all types of people pray. It's a universal human experience, which makes it worth considering, don't you think? 
whether you're a person of the Christian faith or not, whether you're religious or irreligious, prayer is part of our experience as living in this world as humans. And at an institution like a university, which is purposed towards examining our life in this world, giving some thought to the nature of prayer is not therefore out of place. The most surprising thing for me about prayer, though, is not how common or ordinary it is, but how hard it is. You might expect that if prayer is such a part of our lives, it should be a fairly easy practice to adopt. But I suspect that the testimony of many of us in the room here today is that prayer is hard. And not just the one-off irregular prayers, establishing rich habits of prayer, habits which are regular, is hard. If you find that your prayer life is dry or non-existent, if you find that every time you go to pray, your mind is distracted in a hundred other different directions, you're not alone. In part, I think maybe this is because we don't really know what prayer is. We can approach prayer with all these expectations and assumptions that our communities have accumulated over the years without giving too much thought to what prayer actually is. And in the end, to mitigate against the hardness of prayer, we end up focusing either on technique, making sure that we get into the right headspace, that we have the right words to say, that we move our bodies in the right way, that we have our Bible and prayer journal arranged on our scanty desk for the Instagram flat lay in the right way. Or we focus on the duty of prayer, that the exertion of our will, that our willpower will be enough to get us to pray, whether that's through a rigid formula of how many times you'll pray each day or what you'll pray, or a conviction that the quantity of your prayers, the heaping up of words will somehow be effective for you. Even the old Christian discipline of no breakfast without prayer, that you can't eat in the morning before you've prayed and read your Bible for at least 30 minutes, even that can fall into this kind of category. Technique and duty and habit are useful, but they're not the right place to start because prayer is not like falling off a log. Any fool can do that. It's perhaps more like riding a bike. We need to learn to pray. And this was keenly felt by the American novelist Flannery O'Connor. Uh, she kept a prayer journal while she was at uni in the 1940s, and cutting through uh, everything else is this desire that O'Connor had to pray, a simple longing to learn how to pray. She knew that intuitively prayer was the key for everything else she needed to be and wanted to be in life. And she finished one of her prayers with a very simple yet exasperated request. Can't anyone teach me to pray? She wasn't content with the perfunctionary and religious observances of her past. She had to pray. And we have to pray. The only question is how? Who will teach us to pray? Uh, when Jesus' disciples asked Jesus this question in Luke's Gospel, he gave them what is known to us as the Lord's Prayer, the same prayer that was just read from us 
for us from Matthew's Gospel. We need to be taught to pray, and in his mercy and kindness, Jesus does exactly that. Pray then in this way, he says. He teaches us to pray. It's a fairly ordinary prayer in many ways. I think partly because we've become so familiar with it. It's said at the beginning of each sitting day in the Australian Parliament, and until a generation ago, the denomination that I belong to said this prayer four times a day. But it's a gift, actually. It's given to us by Jesus so that we might learn to pray. It's a prayer which has shaped the imagination of many for 2,000 years, and it's a gift given to all those who feel the need to pray but don't know how. It's a gift to everyone who longs for a rich prayer life but seems to be constantly stuck in the mud. It's a gift for everyone who craves to move from duty to delight in their prayer life. We need to learn to pray, which is why we're going to spend the next two weeks just working through the Lord's Prayer. We could have taken other approaches for this series. We could have spent some time considering the Psalms and what the Psalms model for our prayer life. We could have taken the same route through some of Paul's prayers. We could have spent some time considering the theological implications of what it means that Jesus intercedes for us, that Jesus, your Lord and Messiah and Saviour, prays for you, and the Spirit also intercedes for us. But we're going to follow the Lord's Prayer for this series. In this prayer, Jesus explicitly, methodically, and radically teaches us what prayer is. He teaches us how to pray. And for the next two weeks, we're going to consider and try to implement two things which the Lord's Prayer schools us in. Firstly, the Lord's Prayer teaches us that prayer is about communion. And secondly, prayer is about the kingdom. Prayer is about, on the one hand, experiencing and knowing intimacy and fellowship and friendship with God. But prayer is also about aligning the desires of our hearts with God's plans and purposes for the world. And we'll come back to this second purpose for prayer next week and spend the rest of today considering how prayer leads us into friendship with God. I don't know if you noticed, but when we read Matthew 6, Jesus actually begins by teaching us how not to pray. You see it in verse 5 and again in verse 7. There are prayers which are irreverent and displeasing to God. And Jesus highlights two types of wrong prayers. Firstly, there's prayer that is to be seen by others. Verse 5, And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. Now, when you hear about people standing on street corners, don't let your mind jump to those people who stand on corners in the city wearing sandwich boards and ranting at people. That's not who Jesus is thinking about. He's pairing together two things, in a synagogue and praying on the street corner. And I think what Jesus has in mind is regular worship, corporate worship in the synagogue, and civic worship. The synagogue was where regular corporate worship happened, and the street corner is a way of referring to the public square in a town. 
and in a religious society where there would be these great gatherings for worship out in the public domain. So this is what Jesus has in mind here is prayer for public occasions, whether it's in the synagogue or out in the town square, whether it's a religious service or a civil celebration. And the point that Jesus has in mind here is that these prayers are serving a shadow, an alternative purpose. He says that their reason is to be seen by others. Here is prayer on formal public occasions as a way of fitting into society, a kind of cultural expression of religiosity, to be seen, to show that you belong, that you're like one of us. The key is when you're doing that, the one thing you're not doing is relating to God. You're relating to your social and cultural environment and just pretending to relate to God with one eye on who else is there and whether or not they're noticing you. It's not truly prayer because you're just using God for something else. There's no friendship with God in this prayer. Now, of course, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with praying in public. It's both commanded and commended in the Bible. And I hope that here in the EU and in your church, you regularly pray in public, in church at least weekly. And in some measure, I think that the health of our individual personal prayer lives is a reflection of our public prayer life. But how do you tell the difference between whether it's right or wrong? Jesus gives us the answer. He tells us that if the person only prays in public, if they only do their religious thing when other people can see them, that then means pretty decisively that there is nothing of any spiritual significance going on. Verse 6, But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You see what Jesus says? It's what you do in private, precisely when there is no possibility of any other kind of reward. When no one can see you, when no one can think well of you, and no one can praise you except one person, the living and true God, your Father. That's the measure of your praying. That's when it's clear that at the heart of your prayer is God. And Jesus is really fierce about it. If there is never any closed door, if it's only ever pray, praying for show, Jesus calls it the most damning thing he can. It's religious hypocrisy. It's bigotry in the old, true sense of the word. I think it's really interesting when we think of a religious hypocrite, when our society talks about religious bigots, typically what we think of is when a person does external things badly. You know, they, they say that they're a Christian, but they steal money from their company. They say that they're a Christian, but they commit adultery. And those things are serious things. But Jesus, when he wants to dig into the black heart of religious hypocrisy, he doesn't talk about the big, grand, public things. He talks about the private things of the heart. And to counter it, he says, you go into your room, you close the door, and you pray where no one can see you. Uh, in Greek, it's literally you go into your closet. It's kind of like your Harry Potter there under the stairs. And you can find some very fine Tudor houses where Puritans in obedience to this commandment, built closets in their homes so that they could use them just 
for praying. But that's, the details aren't the point here. The point is that when you know, when, that's when you know you're doing it. If you're just doing it to be seen, when prayer is just a technique, that's when prayer is not truly prayer. But when you're doing it when no one can see you, when no one can praise you, that's when you know that it really is prayer because the only thing you can get out of prayer like that is God. That's the first way to pray wrongly. Better not to pray at all than to pray like this. But there's a second way to, to pray wrongly. If the first wrong prayer is about religious hypocrisy, then the second type of wrong prayer is about pagan manipulation. And you see it in verse 7. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Uh, that, that phrase, heap up many phrases, is unique in the ancient world. It's only found here and in Luke 11, the other passage that describes the Lord's Prayer. And it means to babble away, to keep saying the same sound, blah, 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 blah. That's a torrent of blah. And when you pray like this, you pray thinking that you'll be heard because of your many words. You pray like this, thinking that you'll be heard because of how desperate and urgent and torrential your prayer is. It's an intense, outpouring, desperate kind of pray, which figures that the ceaseless flow of phrases and the necessity of the situation might just have an impact on the situation and the likelihood of an answer. God will have to answer me, God will have to listen to me if I pray torrentially and as intensely as I can like this. And Jesus says that this is the wrong form of prayer. This is prayer as technique. People who pray like this have a goal in mind and they're determined to get it. And if torrential praying will help, then that's what they'll do. It's using God to get something that to that person is more important than God. And therefore, they're willing to use him, willing to blah, 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 so that God will give them what they want. And if there's no friendship with God in the hypocrite's prayer, there's no lordship of God in the pagan manipulation prayer, do you see? This kind of prayer is trying to force God's hand. And the point is, it's precisely these two things, deep, intimate friendship with the living and true Lord, which characterizes true prayer. And we see this characterized in the prayer that Jesus goes on to teach in verse 9. Pray then in this way, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Now what stands out about this prayer, what is so striking, is that in the first half, there's precisely nothing about our needs. It sort of stands out once you notice it, doesn't it? There's nothing about the strength that I need to endure the challenges of my life. 
There's nothing about daily bread, nothing about my situation, nothing about the bad things in my life, or even the good things in my life. It's just not about me. What's actually been prayed here? Uh, Jesus isn't just teaching us in this prayer. He's needing a truth into our souls. Because what this prayer is doing is enjoying and noticing and reorientating my life around someone else besides me. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he calls us first to attend to a person, our Father in heaven, our Father, and feel the intimacy of that address, my Father. Uh, The French reformer, John Calvin, explains that to call God Father is to pray in Jesus' name. To pray this prayer is to approach God like Jesus does. Calvin said, who would break forth into such rashness as to claim for himself the honour of a son of God unless we had been adopted as children of God in Christ? This is to approach God radically as Jesus does to know that God is our Father. And the point of this is clear. Before we ask for anything else, before we need anything, the primary goal of prayer has to be Him. Because this is prayer which brings us into intimacy and communion and fellowship with God. Before you ask for anything else, Jesus says, ask for God. That's true prayer. For the simple reason that I don't stand at the heart of the universe, not even at the heart of my own universe. Jesus is saying that it's spiritually dangerous to ask for anything else before we ask for God, for his friendship and connection with him at a deep knowing of God in your soul, at your heart level, getting God for God's sake, not getting God so that others will think that you're pretty impressive. In a sense, Prayer enables us to access what we were made for, friendship with God. You may know this quote that comes from the 4th century pastor, Augustine. When he wrote his own kind of prayer journal, he started by saying, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. We are made to desire and long for something, for someone. I think actually that's why there's so much spirituality in the world, why prayer is as common as we have observed. As varied as Buddhist prayer wheels and the twirling of Sufis and the shamanism of Native Americans and the devotee doing yoga down in the botanical gardens are from each other, they're all searching for this kind of rest, this rest that we're made for, this rest that we're searching for. We pray because we're all longing for this contentment of our hearts to be satisfied in our souls. What Jesus teaches us is that true prayer leads us into this rest. True prayer brings the satisfaction of our heart's desires because true prayer leads us away from manipulation, from showing off. True prayer leads us to enjoy and delight in to know him as beautiful and lovely 
to know him as true and good. Uh, a little later in his prayer journal, The Confessions, Augustine describes resting in God as something like this. You called and cried aloud and forced open my deafness. You gleamed and shine and chase away my blindness. You exhaled odors and I drew in my breath and do pant after you. I tasted and do hunger and thirst. You touched me and I burned for your peace. It's very evocative writing. And for Augustine, it's not just, <clears throat> just about feeling. It's not just about the experience. It's about knowing someone, really knowing someone here in your heart and being known by them in return. And I think you see a similar idea in many of Paul's prayers, actually. It's fascinating that when Paul prays for his friends or even for himself, he never appeals for a change in circumstances. Even though they certainly lived in the midst of many dangers, facing persecution and death and disease, oppression from powerful forces and separation from loved ones, even though they faced beatings and floggings and shipwrecks, their situations were far less secure than our situations as Paul pray for a new emperor or protection from rampaging armies. Not that we shouldn't pray for these things. Paul is pretty explicit in 1 Timothy that when churches meet together, they should pray for peace, for good government, and the needs of the world. But what the content of Paul's prayers reveal to us is what he believed was the most important thing God could give. What is that? What is it that we need? It's to know him better. It means, in Ephesians 1, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. The heart in the Bible being the seat of our longings and desires, our thinking. Or in Ephesians 3, it's having the power to grasp all the past and present and future benefits of belonging to Christ. These prayers are not just about fulfilling an intellectual curiosity, it's about letting these truths wrap themselves around your mind so that they fill your imagination and make your heart thrill. When your hearts apprehend what it means to know God, to know your Heavenly Father like Jesus does, to know Him in such a way that it penetrates and grips us so deeply that our heart, our mind, our will seeks to please Him, then you'll pray and delight in God like this. You see it captured quite beautifully in Psalm 63, which if you have your Bible in front of you, you might want to turn to. David says in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips. When I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, 
for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. How can you ever say something as beautiful and deep like that? How could you ever say that God's steadfast love is better than life itself? Only when you know God like this. Know God like Jesus does, as your Father who loves and cares for you and truly knows you. This is intimacy and communion and friendship with God. The question is then, how can we, how can we have this? How can we pray like this? Because if you start with technique or discipline, like many religious practices do, the Lord's Prayer will never form and shape you the way it can and ought. It's only as you see that Jesus didn't just teach us to pray, but prayed his own prayer, that you can know God like this. Jesus prayed his own prayer. It's kind of, it's radical actually. Only in the Christian gospel is God both the one we pray to and the one who prays. In the garden of Gethsemane, the night before he died, Jesus prayed that he would be spared the ordeal of dying on the cross. But that wasn't the end of his prayer. He said, let your will be done on earth in my life this night as it is in heaven. Your will be done. How will you ever have the power to be God's friend and to know him this intimately like the Lord's Prayer teaches us? Only because God in the person of his son became a weak and needy person whose daily bread was far more precarious than ours is who became a person who, without ever sinning, carried the sins of the whole world all the way to hell, who faced temptations beyond anything we could ever imagine, who practiced his own prayer, thy will be done, to secure for us the eternal bread so that our hearts might be nourished and satisfied in knowing God as friend. He prayed his own prayer so that we could know his father as our father. He entered into our world, into our mess, bearing our sins, so that we might know God and call him father. Nest of the Lord's Prayer and the power it has to form and shape our lives. But to be honest, we're not doing that this week because we're not ready for it, actually. We couldn't handle more than the first line of this prayer of prayers without letting the Spirit do his work of bringing the gospel to our hearts so that faith leads to love without knowing that the Son leads us to the Father. Our prayers will only ever be an exercise in stoking our ego and pride or an attempt to manipulate God into giving us something beyond him. Those prayers would never be true prayers and ultimately unsatisfactory. But when you know that you can approach God like Jesus does, not to manipulate him or to start a transaction with him, but when you can approach him as father, that's when you'll find joy and delight in your prayer life. So as we draw all the threads together this afternoon, I guess my question for you is, will you take Jesus at his word when he says, Pray then in this way. 
Will you take the time this week to approach your Heavenly Father and delight in Him in prayer? Will you actually pray the Lord's Prayer? Take time over the next week to sit and read and meditate and pray the Lord's Prayer. Let it roll around in your imagination and fill your heart. For all those times you don't know what to pray, don't know what to say, Jesus says, pray then in this way. Uh, Another thing you might try, there are lots of really great resources out there for prayer. Um, I've found some that have been written by our Christian ancestors, actually. Some really helpful advice on how to pray, especially in those times when it seems to be doing nothing or prayer just feels really, really hard. And so if you follow that QR code or that um, URL, that will take you to some really great resources from our Christian forebears. One thing you might try this week is a resource that's up there. It's advice, really, that was given by Martin Luther in 1535 to his barber, Peter Burskendorf. Uh, Peter Burskendorf was an um, interesting man. He was Luther's barber. Also had a very strange temper. He got drunk one night and stabbed his son-in-law. So it kind of tells you the measure of the man. But gradually, over time, the gospel came to bear fruit in his life and change him. And he wrote to Luther asking how he should pray. And Luther recommended a daily program of riffing on the Lord's Prayer. It's a bit like jazz. And it's a, it's a really great example of how we can be using the Lord's Prayer to shape our prayer life and delight in God. Luther says before we move to praying the free-form things of our, on our hearts, we should move through each petition of the Lord's Prayer, paraphrasing and personalizing each one for our own needs and concerns. And whilst this only takes maybe two or three minutes, doing this exercise forces us to give God our full attention as we pray. It prevents our mind from being distracted because it gives us a bit of a shape. It also gives us space to pray and to pray for every part of our life because this prayer is shaped and modeled on the Lord's Prayer. It means we end up praying for both the good and the bad in repentance and thankfulness. It means that we'll end up praying for the things that if we're just left to our own devices, we often neglect or forget about. It helps this prayer, this prayer of prayers given to us by Jesus so that we might approach his Father. It gets this prayer into our life so that we might delight and enjoy God. We live in a time that is simultaneously and increasingly secular and spiritual. We live in a culture that is starved for deep experiences of the soul, where there's a real vacuum in our lives. We keep being told that we don't need religion, and yet we keep seeking mystical experiences through all sorts of techniques. But as we've seen, we can't substitute for prayer. It seems that we can't do without it. We can't do without true intimacy with the infinite. And what the Lord's Prayer holds for us is the secret for what we seek, the secret to finding true rest for our hearts. The Lord's Prayer holds for us the secret to finding friendship and intimacy with God.
Would you please bow with me in prayer? Lord, we thank you that we can approach you. We thank you that we can do that and call you Father in Jesus' name. We thank you that Jesus prays for us. We thank you that he intercedes for us and that the Spirit intercedes for us too. Lord, we thank you for what a great gift this is that you give us, that in our weakness you teach us to pray and that you, in Jesus' words, have given us these words that we can pray when we do not think we know how to pray. Lord, I pray that um, as we approach this next week, help us, Lord, to dwell on the words of the Lord's Prayer. Help us, Lord, to think about what this means for our life um, and help us, Lord, to really grasp how big it is that uh, we can approach you and call you Father and speak to you. Uh, Lord, I just pray that um, you would be teaching us how to pray um, this week and next week. Help us, Lord, to use the resources that um, you have graced us with um, so that we might be able to speak to you better and know how to do that well, um, knowing, Lord, that it is not in our strength that we can do this, but through your strength. We pray this in your name. Amen.